0: or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Mummy Movie Podcast, where once again we are returning to the Universal Mummy franchise as we look into the Scorpion King 5 Book of Souls. As I'm sure many of you are aware, This is a series that I have some pretty mixed emotions about. The first is undeniably charming, plus as it was Dwayne Johnson's first lead role, it does admittedly have history on its side as well. The second is a film that I'm pretty sure that I, and I alone, like. Pretty much every review I have seen has been negative, but I've got to admit, I got a fair amount of enjoyment out of it. As for the third film, as of yet, it is the second worst film I have reviewed whilst doing this podcast. Though once again, I know quite a few people who feel a little bit differently about this and actually quite enjoyed it. The fourth one, on a technical level, is not a good film. But honestly, who cares? It was self-aware and a lot of fun. In my opinion, this is the most enjoyable one in the series. Or at least so far, maybe this one will beat it. We'll see. And now we have arrived at the fifth, and as of yet, last Scorpion King film. I say as of yet, because there is actually a sixth one in production. Though I will admit my early impressions of it are a bit sceptical. This is largely because, although it does have Dwayne Johnson on board as a director, which admittedly is really cool, it is also supposed to be set in the modern day, which seems like a really weird choice to me. I guess we shall just have to wait and see how it is, when and, well, admittedly, if it comes out, I will admit I'm a bit sceptical on that as well. Anyway, um, in terms of the format, we shall start with a look at the background information on the film, then I shall assess the historical accuracy, and finally I shall review the film and then rate it out of ten. But before then, we must uphold the ancient traditions of this podcast stretching all of the way back to the first episode. It is time for my dramatic intro. Right, you were once a king, and then after the death of your wife, you allowed your kingdom to fall apart. Then, in a battle for redemption, you became a ruler in Japan. Yes, that literally happened in the third film. However, Then, for some reason, you forgot that fact and turned into a mercenary, searching for a magical crown as you slayed mechanical dragons and flew through the air using magnets. Now, you are a simple blacksmith, trying to live a normal and peaceful life. However, the stories of your exploits are still out there, many questioning whether you are a legend or simply a myth. And so, it is only a matter of time before adventure comes knocking on your door once again. A mighty and evil warrior is sweeping across Egypt using a magical sword which makes him unstoppable. It is up to you and your companions to put an end to his reign of terror. But to do so, you will need to find the one thing that can rob him of his power. You will need to search for The Book of Souls. Although this film went straight to DVD and Blu-ray, it actually did do okay as it debuted at number two in these charts, though it is also undeniable that it did continue a consistently downward trend for the series. When the first Scorpion King film came out, it was the most viewed film on IMDb. Then when the second one came out, it reached number six in the rankings. The third reached number 20 and the 4th, 266. This 5th one, on its debut day on the 23rd of October 2018, only reached 268, so there is an undeniable downward trend here. This is also the only appearance of Zach McGowan as the Scorpion King. I'm not going to talk about how I felt he did here, after all, I feel that's probably better spoken about during the review section. In terms of the actual filming, most of it took place in Cape Town South Africa. It is admittedly a little bit disappointing that this film was not shot on location but yeah given the sheer quantity of locations in this film and the probably admittedly small budget, it's definitely something they've been surprisingly quiet on, I suppose is maybe asking a little bit much. In terms of the cast, Pearl Thusey plays Tala, who's a a Nubian princess and one of the allies of the Scorpion King. Howard Charles plays Uruk, the fearsome leader of the Black Arrow tribe. Mailing Ng, best known for her appearance in the Suicide Squad, plays the villainous Kenza. Katie Lewis Sanders plays Amina, another ally of the Scorpion King. Nathan Jones, known for many films including Mad Max Fury Road plays Enkidu, a monster forged out of clay to protect Amina. Peter Mensa plays the main villain, Nebserek. And as already said, Zach McGowan plays Matthias, the Scorpion King. OK, we have now arrived at the historical accuracy section. So here... As is kind of self-explanatory, really, I'm just going to go over the film saying what it gets right and wrong in terms of history. And I will say that this is a part that has always been a little bit insane with these films as, well, in the past, we've dealt with English and Japanese flags in 3000 BC, um, strangely Napoleonic villains at the same time, casual day trips from Nubia to Mesopotamia and even ninjas for some reason. You know, that's just naming a few that I'm throwing out off the top of my head. However, it's probably best just to sort of lay the historical groundwork first. The Scorpion King is actually based on a real individual. There were actually two people named King Scorpion, but the second and sort of better known of these ruled over Upper, so Southern Egypt, during the time known as the Proto-Dynastic Period probably around about 3,100-ish BC, give or take 100 years. We we really don't have exact dates when we go this far back in history. So basically, the proto-dynastic period was a point just before pharaonic Egypt started. It was a time where Egypt was not yet unified as a country, but that formation was starting to begin. It really is a fascinating time period, and one that is very much steeped in mystery. However, by the same token, as in real life King Scorpion was the ruler of Upper Egypt during 3100-ish BC, you can kind of see why him fighting ninjas in the third film is a tad inaccurate. You know, given that they weren't really a thing until the 12th century AD. Though admittedly, in fairness, in the fourth one he also fights a mechanical dragon, and in this fifth one he's going after a warlord with a magical sword. Basically, these films are more just fantasy films that put about as much effort into historical accuracy as Ramesses II put into humbleness when he made himself into a living god. Either way, let's begin. The opening section of this film takes place in Egypt before the time of the pharaohs. Here, a fictional pre-dynastic king makes a pact with Anubis to forge a sword so powerful that whoever wields it can rule the world. First things first, although for the most part the sword has a kind of like magical, fiery glow to it, it looks like it's been made from iron. I feel that this is a point that comes up consistently with any episode related to the Scorpion King films, so I'm just going to go over it quickly. Swords were not present in Egypt before the time of the pharaohs, and they most certainly would not have been made from iron. The earliest swords actually come from Turkey, with the very earliest example being in around about 3,300 BC, give or take. The type shown in the film is a Capresh sword. And, well, the earliest example of one of these comes from 2,500 BC-ish. As for Anubis, the film calls him the God of the Underworld. Anubis was associated with the underworld and also with embalming as, well, in the Osiris myth, which is probably the most famous Egyptian myth of all time, he embalmed the god Osiris. He was also often called the protector of the tomb. I've spoken about this previously, but in the First Dynasty, he seems to have had a lot to do with the protection of tombs. Around this time, and also before the First Dynasty, so... In the proto-dynastic period, before then even in the pre-dynastic period, people were typically buried quite shallowly in the ground. Dogs would often come along and dig up the bodies and eat their flesh. Anubis, the god commonly depicted as a dog, was used to fight like with like. Whilst other dogs harmed bodies, Anubis protected them. So in fairness, not only does the film correctly associate Anubis with dogs, but he also existed around this time. In fact, Anubis was one of the oldest Egyptian gods. Unfortunately, however, after the flashback scene, there are several references to pharaohs during the time of King Scorpion, and we also see pyramids as well. King Scorpion, as already said, lived around about 3,100 BC. He was living before Egypt was unified and thus before pharaonic Egypt. There were no pharaohs. Also, the first pyramid in Egypt was the Step Pyramid of Djoser, which was built around about 400 years after King Scorpion. On a more positive note, after the flashback opening scene, one of the first scenes of the film shows people going into a tomb. One of the characters here claims that the writing in the tomb comes from Mesopotamia and was Sumerian in origin. This is actually not entirely inaccurate. So, Mesopotamia is sort of, uh, for the most part, the ancient name for Iraq. In a broader sense, it also included areas such as, well, parts of Iran, uh, Syria and Turkey as well. It was quite a large area. And in fairness, the civilization known as Sumer, not only was in around during the time of King Scorpion, but it was part of Mesopotamia. Further, one really interesting fact is that Egypt and Sumer seem to have invented writing around about the same time, in roughly about 3200 BC. Anyway, moving on. On the downside, we see people riding horses. I have spoken about this before, but essentially, horses did not arrive in Egypt until a time period known as the Second Intermediate Period probably around about 1700 or 1600 BC. So, you know, we're talking well over a thousand years after the reign of King Scorpion. At this point, riding them was at best rare and they were typically used with chariots. At one point, we see a wheeled cart. At first, I did think that this was a mistake as, well, interestingly, the wheel arrived in Egypt at around the same time as horses largely because the primary use of horses during the introduction was to pull chariots. However, then I realised that at this point in the film, they were supposed to be in Mesopotamia, and in fact, the earliest wheels ever found do come from this area of the world. The earliest example comes from around about 3500 BC. Further, the type shown in the film is made from solid wood, This is correct, as, well, spoked wheels were not invented for another 1,500 years or so. On the downside, Matthias, the the Scorpion King, is still called an Arcadian. The real King Scorpion was most certainly Egyptian, and in fact, the Arcadian Empire did not come around until about 2,350 BC. So the film was only out by, you know, what, like 800 years or something? In fairness, I suppose, so. the Arcadian Empire did dominate the area of Mesopotamia. During the film, one of the Scorpion King's allies, Tala, says that she is a Nubian warrior. So, in ancient times, Nubia was the land south of Egypt. Today, it would be the Sudan. In fairness to the film, uh, Tala is black and this would be correct. In fact, in ancient Egyptian depictions of the Nubians, they were always shown with very dark skin. Though I will admit there was a part of me that wished she'd be using a bow in the film instead of the kind of spear thing she has, because the actual ancient Egyptian name for Nubia was Tarseti, meaning land of the bow. It was called this because to the Egyptians, the Nubians were expert bowmen. One further point that was pretty good in this film is that most of the writing is either shown on inscriptions or on scrolls. They never show an actual book in this film. This is accurate as such books would not be invented for thousands of years. At one point, it's probably about halfway through the film, the Scorpion King and Tala arrive at a sort of gateway that's supposed to lead them to the Book of Souls. I will admit there was a part here that really made me chuckle, as on the gateway there is a depiction of the Egyptian god Bess. I will admit I did a quick check online just to make sure I was correct and I quickly realised that the writers had clearly just grabbed the image from Wikipedia. It's literally the very first image you see. If we are being very, very kind to the film here, we do find out that this gateway leads to a place where one of the characters, Amina, was living. Bess was commonly a god who protected the home. In fact, during the New Kingdom, the period where we get the likes of, uh, I don't know, uh, Tutu Hatshepsut, uh, Ramesses II, a lot of very, very famous pharaohs, uh, Bess was actually an incredibly popular god in ancient Egypt. And in fact, Bess did even spread quite far and wide. He was also worshipped in Syria, which was part of Mesopotamia, the place where the characters are now supposed to be. However, realistically, this is likely all just a bit of a coincidence. And also, the first images of Best didn't come around until the Old Kingdom, with the actual oldest one coming about 400 years after the reign of King Scorpion. Anyway, moving on. Interestingly, the protector of Amina in the film is a large monster made out of clay called Enkidu, Enkidu is actually a character in the oldest ever known story, the Epic of Gilgamesh. This story was actually Sumerian in origin, so it seems likely that this was not entirely a coincidence on the writer's part. However, Enkidu most certainly was not a giant clay monster. Instead, he was a feral man who the gods created to stop King Gilgamesh from oppressing his people. In the Epic of Gilgamesh, Gilgamesh actually ends up befriending Enkidu, and they go on many adventures together until Enkidu is sentenced to death by the gods. I will just quickly say the Epic of Gilgamesh really is a fascinating read and one that's easily found online and also relatively cheaply in book form for those who would rather read it that way. I I know I personally would. I actually have a copy on my shelf right now. It really is a fascinating tale and one that's well, obviously quite historically important. It even involves the earliest known sort of world flood myth as well. The final point I would like to talk about is that well interestingly, Enkidu is not the only character to have a kind of sort of Sumerian inspired name. One of the characters who's the chief of the Black Arrow tribe in the film is called Aruk. Aruk was actually the name of a Sumerian city which was founded in about 5000 BC, (laughs) very, very roughly. Today, the ruins of Uruk can be found in Iraq, and in fact, there is even a very plausible argument that Uruk gave Iraq its name. Uruk, Iraq. It's not hard to see the similarity there. Though, I will admit, it took me a depressingly long time to spot that. Interestingly, in the Epic of Gilgamesh, Gilgamesh was the king of Uruk. So, Fair enough, it's strange that they have a person named after a city here, but the Sumerian influence is still very clear. Overall, although this film, unsurprisingly, is pretty horrendous when it comes to historical accuracy, it is still better than any of the other Scorpion King films. There are no English or Japanese flags in this one. There are no afternoon trips from Nubia all the way to Mesopotamia. Uh, no strange Napoleonic villains, no tea drinking or interactions with Japan. Instead, there are some parts which even have hints of accuracy, even if, in part, they are largely incidental. Anubis, for instance, would have been a god at this time, and he would have been associated with dogs and the afterlife, as the film shows. Also, although there were no wills in Egypt at this time, they would have been around in Mesopotamia, And the types shown in the film are the solid, spokeless type that would have been used. However, on the downside, there are quite a few issues as well. I mean, I haven't even spoken about all of the costumes and weapons in the film. Pretty much all of these are completely wrong, to be honest. Also, we have people riding on the back of horses, which would not have been a thing, especially with such modern-looking saddles. We have images of Bess in Mesopotamia about, what, like 400 years before he even existed, or at least we have any evidence of him existing. And the Scorpion King is still called an Arcadian in this film. Not only would he have actually been Egyptian, but the Arcadian Empire would not have existed for about another 800 years. Okay, we have now arrived at the review section, so here I shall simply go over the film, saying what I liked and disliked about it, and then I shall quickly go over the sort of general reviews for the film, and then give my own rating as well. To begin with, historical accuracy aside, I genuinely quite liked the beginning of this film. The flashback scene here where we see an evil king making a pact with Anubis to create a magical sword did lay the foundation for this film very effectively. Not only did it make the viewer aware of what they were getting themselves in for, but I will admit I thought the name of the sword was actually really cool, as it was called the the Fang of Anubis. Occasionally, throughout the film, there were also hints of the Mummy 1999-esque music in it, Not only did this make the music seem sort of mildly less generic and royalty-free, but I guess due to the nostalgia, it did make me feel more invested in the film as well. When it comes to Zach McGowan as the Scorpion King, I will admit I was sceptical about them changing the actor. This is largely because Victor Webster had acted in the last two films, and although I really wasn't a fan of the Scorpion King 3, I did quite like the fourth one, and I generally do quite like his presence. He always came across as quite likeable and sort of relatively charismatic as well. Plus, it always felt like he was having fun with the role, which is just nice to see. However, although I still feel that Victor Webster is my favourite Scorpion King, and I am actually including Dwayne Johnson in that, Zach McGowan was also really good, and I do feel that most people would probably prefer him to Victor Webster, He seemed to bring a sort of more grounded approach to the role, and he also had an incredibly gruff voice that did give him a kind of battle-hardened warrior feel. Further, he has very piercing blue eyes, which gives him a slightly unusual look and an air of intelligence. When I say unusual, I feel I should probably stress I don't mean that in a bad way. I actually thought it made him quite charismatic for a film that was suspiciously quiet about its budget. The production of the film does actually look pretty good for the most part. Everything is lit very nicely, and although the CGI is, you know, hardly outstanding, I've definitely seen worse. Though I will admit, I was not a fan of the way the fight scenes were shot. Basically, if a camera wasn't wildly shaking, it was using unnecessary slow-mo, and if it wasn't doing that, then there was just cut after cut, camera change after camera change. This is probably my least favourite part of any B-movie, as it genuinely makes me feel a bit sick. It is also just really obvious that the film is doing this to hide the fact that the actual scenes themselves are pretty underwhelming without it. Though, saying that, I will admit, paradoxically, I suppose, I did enjoy every fight scene in the first hour of the film, roughly. This is largely because they all had purpose. The first proper one we see shows the Scorpion King losing to the soldiers of Kenza, one of the generals of the main bad guy, Nebseric. Not only is this really good as it shows that the Scorpion King is firstly human and also beatable, but in turn it adds a level of peril to the rest of the film. Further, what's really cool here is his loss had ramifications. At this point, he is a blacksmith in a village as he well, basically wants to live a simple life. He wants to leave the the adventures behind. Because he loses, not only does the village get burned down, but a child who Matthias, the, the Scorpion King, is training slightly earlier on in the film, gets killed. I was genuinely shocked by this and I will admit it made me legitimately hate the villains. As upsetting as this scene may be, it was very effective. We now have a reason to hate the villains. We now have a reason to root for the hero. And we now know that he can be beaten. That's all great, to be honest. The next fight scene comes after Matthias and Tala have been captured by the Black Arrow tribe. Basically, in order to gain their freedom, Matthias has to take on four of the tribe in combat. And in this one, he wins. Not only does this gain him an ally as he shows mercy to his opponents by not killing them, But at this point in the film, he has lost one fight and been captured twice. Matthias was hardly looking like a formidable warrior, and so this scene was needed to remind the viewer that he is indeed a mighty warrior and a skilled fighter. So once again, we have a fight scene that serves multiple purposes. Further, although this film is admittedly selective with what it remembers from the former films, there are some callbacks. For a start, Tala is supposed to be the daughter of Balthazar, who was played by Michael Clark Duncan in the first film. It is nice that there is at least an attempt of continuity here, even if it is incredibly half-hearted. When it comes to Enkidu, the kind of like clay giant who guards Amina, once again, he's a really fun character. I did find some of his lines a little bit hit and miss, but overall I liked him and I thought that Nathan Jones played the part really well. In terms of the actual world here, although horrendously inaccurate, I did actually think it was quite fun and sort of quite colourful as well. I'm not sure this is just because it's the fifth film in a series and it was also adding its own spin on it, but it it felt very full of life. I also like that they were not able to travel from Mesopotamia to Egypt in an afternoon, much like they had sort of done in previous films. Instead, they made the journey much longer, which, (laughs) I mean, unsurprisingly, made the world feel bigger. On the downside, however, I did feel that the actual script here was pretty weak, and it felt like every character had been written by the same person. I mean, don't get me wrong, they did all have their own sort of individual personalities, but the way they spoke was almost completely identical. Further, this film does the same thing that a lot of modern films do. The talking is so quiet, and the action is so loud, I genuinely hate this trend. Don't get me wrong, when I'm, you know, sitting in a cinema, this is great and really helps me to get immersed in the film. But when I'm at home watching this on the TV, you know, having to constantly turn the sound up and down so that I don't annoy the neighbours, it does take me out of the action somewhat. I really wish they would either not have this in the home release or, you know, have it as an optional extra, something you can turn off and on. I will also admit, although I did very much enjoy the first 50 minutes, you know, maybe to an hour of this film, it did start to drag after that point. In those first 50 minutes, everything that happened had purpose. But then slowly, the unnecessary fight scenes began to creep in, you know, and they were clearly just there to extend the runtime and, you know, when there wasn't an unnecessary fight scene going on, an emphasis seemed to be put on the dialogue, which was probably the weakest part of the film. Basically, this film very much suffered from mid-film drag. Annoyingly, this meant that, although the film did manage to drag it back a little bit at the end, my enthusiasm had already been dampened, and as the credits began to roll, I couldn't help but feel just a tad underwhelmed. Real shame, as I did enjoy a large part of this film, In terms of the reviews, they were pretty mixed. Although there is no critical consensus on Rotten Tomatoes, it has a surprisingly good audience score with 72%, and on IMDb, it has a score of 4.6 out of 10. Here, there were quite a few people who watched it expecting a so bad that it's good film. However, many of these people admitted that they were pleasantly surprised. Further, although one or two people complained about the acting, overall it was generally seen as pretty decent, though there was a common theme of people complaining about the weakness of the script. Although this was quite clearly a B-movie, several reviewers did comment on how the low budget was at least used effectively. Additionally, despite me personally not being a fan of the way the fight scenes were shot, in fairness, quite a few people seemed to have enjoyed them, I guess each to their own. For myself, I do feel that this is the most competently made Scorpion King film. I genuinely don't have any complaints when it comes to the cast, and I do feel that they all played their part really well, regardless of whether the script was good or not. Also, I do agree that the budget was used incredibly well. I thought they used it very effectively. Oh, I will admit, if I'm being completely honest, I reckon if you were to ask me and say, I don't know, like a year's time, which Scorpion King film I want to watch, this would not be my first choice. Although this one is definitely the most competently made, it was not the most fun. For me, I would still rate the Scorpion King 4 above this. As I've kind of said in the past, when it comes to my scoring system, the highest a so bad that it's good film can sort of achieve is a 6 out of 10. Anything higher than that has to be good for the reason it was made. Realistically, this is what I would score the Scorpion King 1, 2 and 4. When it comes to the Scorpion King 5, I would also rate it 6 out of 10, but admittedly for different reasons. This is not a so bad that it's good film. Instead, what we have here is a passable film that's held back by the script and the fact that it drags a lot in the middle, which admittedly does dampen my enthusiasm for the end of the film. Unfortunately, also for that reason, this is less entertaining than the majority of the series. Though I suppose it could also be argued that it's kind of a bigger achievement as well. If I was to rate the Scorpion King films from worst to best, dead last I would still put the Scorpion King 3. Then I think would come number 2. After that, the original Scorpion King with Dwayne Johnson. I think... We would then arrive at this fifth one, so technically the fifth one is the second best Scorpion King film in my opinion, but still top of the pile, the best Scorpion King film is the Scorpion King 4, Quest for Power. Thank you very much for listening, I certainly hope you have enjoyed this episode, and if you have, why not consider liking, subscribing, leaving a comment and join me next Monday for a special Christmas episode. For this, I recently put up a poll on my Instagram page to see what film I should cover. The options were between Frankenstein vs. The Mummy from 2015 and Joseph, King of Dreams from the year 2000. Unexpectedly, these films actually tied dead-on 50-50, so I feel, although I'm not going to be covering them both on Christmas Day, it's fair to say I do need to do them both at some point. Therefore, for Christmas, I am going to do Frankenstein vs. the Mummy. And then, on New Year's Day, I shall cover Joseph, King of Dreams. I hope you all have a really good week. If you are celebrating, I hope you have an amazing Christmas. And see you then. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-Free Listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash newsadfree.